morning, church family. It's a joy to be here worshiping with y'all. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to all the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were unashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, as I mentioned, we've been in this series uh, called Man is Dead. And if that seems a little morbid for you, what, what we're trying to say in that idea, that phrase, we live, as I mentioned before, in a secular age. We, we live in an age, even though many people, especially in America, are confessionally theistic, they would say they believe in God, their instincts or what's framing them, Charles Taylor, the author I just spoke of, calls the secular three. Uh, and, and really, secular three means this, what the decisions you're making, the, the impulses you have, how you're framing your life are not framed with the fear of the Lord in mind. They're not framed with God in mind. Uh, so confessionally, yes, people may say they believe in God, but, but how they're actually ordering and living their lives is framed from a secular perspective. Now, this seems, this idea that um, we are free from God, you know, Nietzsche famously said, God is dead, we have killed him. And, and what he meant by that, if you've heard that before, he, he was saying that in an age of enlightenment, in, in an age of human flourishing, of human achievement, like we're in right now, we don't really need old stories about some old man in the sky. We're free from all that. We don't need that anymore. And that idea can feel incredibly liberating, right? We're free. We, we, we're free from God. We, we don't have accountability. We don't have to answer. We can do whatever we want to do. To quote James Taylor, if it feels nice, don't think twice. But what we've actually found ourselves in is a world that, even though we, we, we feel liberated, even though it seems like we're doing what makes us happy, it, it doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't make us happy as happy as it may seem. I think Cheryl Crow was more honest when she said, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. But if it makes you happy, then why are you so sad? In this age that feels so liberating, people feel so lost and sad and confused. We're asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to be human? We've lost our sense of identity. There's a great irony in this, right? Man has killed God, right? We don't need God anymore. But in killing God, we've also killed off any sort of ultimate form or ultimate purpose or ultimate telos or ultimate morality that we may have. And again, that feels incredibly liberating at first, but it's actually terrifying. 
It's made us to feel incredibly lost. And we don't know up from down or right from wrong anymore. Man is dead. We have no form, no meaning. So in response to this secular age, secular three, as Charles Taylor calls it, the secular age that we found ourselves in, what, is, what do Christians say about this? How should we think about this age? Now, what we've been doing through this whole series is we've been looking at the Bible, and the Bible from the very beginning gives an enormously weighty and amazing and wonderful and powerful understanding of human life. Christians actually shouldn't be asking the question, what does it mean to be human? Because the Bible has revealed this to us. And what the Bible says is that human beings have been made in the image of God. Now, that idea, you may have heard it before, but it's incredibly powerful. We've been saying that this means that, first of all, human beings are sacred. There is an intrinsic value to humanity. You are an eternal being that God has made above all the rest of his creation. We've been saying that human beings are relational. And this is kind of an amazing thing to believe, that we can actually know God. I mean, we say that. Yeah, I know God. I know God. But that's an amazing thing to say, that you know God. We've been saying that human beings have certain functions implanted into us, that God has given us capacities. And particularly those capacities are to be fruitful and multiply. We have the capacity to be fruitful and multiply and to to rule the earth or to take dominion or order the earth. Now, the interesting, interesting thing about these capacities is that God has just created and then ordered a world, right? God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, and then he ordered the heavens and the earth. And what does he say to humanity? What is the function of humanity? Create and order, right? Be fruitful, create life, multiply, and take dominion, take order over, take control over this world. And as we understand all of this, that we're sacred, that we can relate to God, that we have certain functions, we represent the Lord. God has called us to be his representatives so that his glory, his life, his goodness can be known through humanity. But here's the deal. You're all made this way. You're, you're, all, you're all made this way. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe in God or not, you actually are sacred beings made in the image of God, whether you believe in the Lord or not. But if you remove God from that equation, right, if you don't believe in God, if you don't know why you have this capacity to be fruitful, if you don't know why you have this desire to take dominion, if you don't know why you have this need to represent something, right, or who you're supposed to represent. If you don't know why you have this capacity to relate to something or to have some greater purpose to your life, if, if you remove God from the equation, then you're forced to go out on a journey, as it were, and figure out your own identity, make your own way, figure out what life is all about. And in this secular age, People have gone out and tried to find life and identity and purpose in all sorts of ways. And, and, and we're going to talk about one of those this week and one of those next week. And I wish I had more time. All of these are kind of a 101 sermon, by the way. And I hope in your groups and through the sermon talk back and just in conversations that you have, you'll go deeper in all of these conversations. But the one I want to look at today, a, a place where people have gone out to try to find identity and life is sex and sexuality. How do we think about this? And so what I want to think things I want to look at with you today, first of all, God's design for sex. 
Secondly, what man has done with sex. And then third, how God redeems sex. So God's design for sex. Now, there can be a perception out there that Christians are kind of prudish when it comes to sex. It's a taboo topic that Christians don't like to talk about. But of course, that kind of perception doesn't actually represent real Christianity. Uh, in fact, the Bible is not afraid of this topic at all. It's all throughout the Bible. There's a whole book of the Bible that actually very explicitly describes a delightful and joyous sexual relationship between a man and his wife. Um, there's passages in the wisdom literature, commands that uh, the husband and the wife be ravaged by one another sexually. Ravished, not ravaged. Ravished by one another Sexually, um, I mean, even this, how does the whole Bible begin? It's a naked man and a naked woman singing, as it were, a love song to one another, okay? So this is not a taboo topic biblically, but, but why? What is it? How do we understand this? What's going on beyond just the obvious, um, you know, the obvious conclusions? What is sex, how do we understand it in a biblical framework? Well, first, I want to talk about it in two ways. And, and the first way I want to talk about it is sex as a sacrament. Now, a sacrament is a physical sign of something spiritual, something bigger, something deeper that's going on. It's a way that we, we show it physically, in a physical way, something beyond uh, the physical. And there's a lot to actually learn about this idea in this passage. Verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. It's not good that the man should be alone. And so what does God do? He begins to create human relationships. Now, in this particular instance, he creates marriage. Now, as a side note, though, there are many kinds of human relationships that are all cures for loneliness. Uh, some of them we see in the Bible, one is friendship. One is a relationship with our family. One is deeper intimacy with God. And one is, of course, marriage. These are all ways that we experience community, relationship with one another. And, and the reason I point this out, I wish I could jump into all of these. But the reason I point this out is I think we live in an age that is hyper-focused. It overemphasizes romantic love as a cure to loneliness. And I want you to hear this especially to some of my single friends out there. When romantic love is rightly pursued according to God's design, it is wonderful. It does give you a sense of enormous belonging and love. But, and I really want you to hear this, please listen to this. When you pursue romantic love wrongly, outside of God's design, it actually only leaves you feeling more lonely. It's only, a, it's only a cure to loneliness if it's, if it's pursued rightly, if it's pursued according to God's design. But God, of course, has created us to be relational beings. It is not good for man to be alone. So God gives the man a wife. And God's design for marriage is that it would be a lifelong, whole self union between a man and a woman. That was God's design, that there would be a lifelong, meaning until death, whole self, meaning every component of the person, the whole personhood union between a man and a woman. 
And when that is understood, what is the conclusion? Verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There was no shame. There was no, there was no discouragement. There was no brokenness. It was whole. It was healing. And this sex that they experienced, this this naked intimacy, if you will, that they experienced here was a sign of the whole self-union that they, had, that they were to experience with one another. Uh, I would define sex this way. Sex is a sacrament of marriage that physically points to the whole self-union between a husband and a wife. Sex is a sign of marriage that, physic, that physically points to the whole self-union between a husband and a wife. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The word hold fast there, it comes from the Hebrew dabak. And I don't actually prefer this translation. I, I actually like the old King James better, but we dropped it because we don't use this word that much, but it's a good word, cleave, right? Dabak, it means to cleave, to be totally joined with. That's the, that's the translation here, right? A man shall leave his father and mother and, be, and form one union, one whole self union with his wife. She shall leave her father and mother and cleave, form one whole self union with her husband. And then what is the response to that? And they shall become one flesh. And the word flesh there is the word basar. Now this is, this is more to the point of flesh. Their bodies come together. So do you see, do you see God's design here? When cleaving happens, right? When the whole personhood is joined in the lifelong covenant of marriage, then the flesh comes together as a sign of this whole self-union. We see the same kind of language in the New Testament. There are two Greek words for body. One is soma and one is sarx. And soma is kind of the whole self. It's kind of the debak of this. It's the whole personhood. And the other is sarx, which is more the fleshy part, the, the body part of the human body. So Paul famously says in 1 Corinthians 6, this is a famous passage on Christian sexual ethics. He says, do, not, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one, and this is amazing, one body with her. One soma is the word Paul uses there. Don't you know, Paul is saying, that you can't just have casual sex. Like if you're joining yourself with a prostitute, you're actually becoming one body with her. For it is written, the two shall become one sarks. When the flesh comes together, when the sarks comes together, the soma comes together. When the flesh comes together, the whole person comes together. This is why there is no such thing as casual sex. I mean, there is, but this is why it never works. This is why during sex, people feel compelled to express their love, to say things like, to make promises, to say things like, I'll be with you forever, right? They, they feel this com compulsion the soma is coming together. It's not just a physical thing. They're linking themselves to one another. Debak and Basar, soma and sark, when they are joined, 
They should not be ripped apart. I mean, what do we call it? What do we call it? What's the word we use when the body gets separated from the soul and mind and spirit, right? What, what do we call that? When, we, when the body gets separated from the soul, what do we, what's the word we use to describe that phenomenon? And you know what that word is? Death, right? This is why sex outside of marriage doesn't work. You're ripping your body apart. It's actually a violent thing. It's why there is always accompanied with that this feeling of emptiness and loneliness. It's why it never feels healing and whole. And this gets to this idea of sacrament. A sacrament is a physical sign of something more, something spiritual, something deeper. So we, we practice these ordinances or whatever you want to call them, sacraments here. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? It's a physical thing. Baptism, somebody goes under the water and they come out. We're going to celebrate baptism later. The Lord's Supper, we take bread and we take wine and we remember that the body of Christ was broken for us. The blood of Christ was spilled in our baptism. We remember, we're, it's a physical sign to say, I repent of my sins, I am dead in my sin, but Christ has made me alive. Christ has called me to new life. It's a physical sign of something more, something bigger spiritually that is happening, that has happened to you. That's the idea of a sacrament. Now, here's the deal. A sacrament that, that is the sign of a covenant shouldn't be practiced outside of the covenant, okay? In fact, there's a lot of people that have come to me and they got baptized as a child just because that's what you did in their church. You know, everybody was eight years old. All the eight-year-olds got baptized or whatever. Um, or they've been taking communion just because that's what you did. You just took communion. And, and actually that event, those events, the fact that they kind of celebrated the signs of the covenant without actually being in covenant relationship with the Lord has actually confused them. It's given them a false sense of salvation. It's, it's confused, am I really a believer? Or do I really know the Lord? They, they hadn't really experienced repentance and faith and those sign, taking the sign of the covenant outside of the covenant, taking the sacrament outside of the covenant actually confused the covenant. It actually created a barrier. It created a distortion to actually entering into the covenant. And I just want you to hear this. It's the same thing with, with marriage and sex. The sign is not to be taken outside of the covenant. It only confuses and distorts the covenant. But here's the deal. I want you to hear this. Just like when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, it is this covenant renewal, isn't it? When we celebrate baptism later, it's covenant renewal. We're going to see souls come up here, and they're going to give a testimony of what God has done in their life. And we're going to witness that. And we're going to see them go into the water. We're going to see them come out. And I hope that in every one of your hearts, if you're a believer, I hope something will happen. I hope you'll say, God has done that for me. God has done that for me. God rescued me like that. When we take the Lord's Supper and we celebrate the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus, I hope that in a very real way, that is a covenant reminder to us that God has done this for me, that he's called me in, that we are a part of the covenant now. And here's the deal. This is the beauty of God's design of sex and marriage. Every time a man and a woman come together in the covenant of marriage to have sex with one another, they're reminding themselves of this covenant that they've made. I will love you till death do us part, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. We are one flesh, and there's no shame. Don't you see how beautiful this is? Don't you see God's design in this? But it's also a signpost. This is where it gets really special. 
You know, I had a professor one time tell me, somebody say, well, what's a signpost? What's a signpost? A signpost is, is um, it, it's a sign that you're moving in the right direction. You, you know you're going in the right direction. We went on a hike. Some of the staff guys and I went out to Las Vegas to visit a church this week that um, where we're trying to learn from, and it was a really helpful meeting, a church plant out there that we've, uh, we really admire. And I love going to those meetings. I always say, okay, what mis- I always, my first question is, what mistakes have you made? Like, t- tell me all the bad stuff first. I want to avoid that. And then, you know, okay, now what, what's the good stuff you did? But anyway, so we met with this church, and then afterward we went on this hike. And we were trying this trail. We maybe kind of got in over our heads a little bit. It wasn't a trail. It was... We were trying to get to this canyon. There was no trail. It was kind of backcountry hiking out there in Arizona. We went over to Arizona. And, um, and we didn't really know where we were. We didn't have a good map. We didn't have a GPS. But along the trail, if you've done hiking like this before, every once in a while you'll see what's called a cairn. And it's just like a, a stack of man-made rocks. And you know that somebody's been there before. And it's, it's, you love to see it because it's like, okay, we're probably going the right way here because this is a sign. It's a signpost. A signpost is a sign that, that somebody that knows more than you leaves you to say you're going in the right way. And God in his mercy has given us all these little signposts in life. Actually, baptism itself is a signpost. When you see baptism, you're reminded that one day you'll be resurrected. You're moving in the right way if you continue to believe these things. Corporate worship is a signpost, right? You're here surrounded by the body of Christ. One day you'll be surrounded by every tribe and nation around the throne of God. This is a signpost. You're doing the right thing. You're moving in the right direction. Sex is like this. God has created us in his image to create, to be like him. I had a professor one time say this. The reason that God made sex so pleasurable is that he wanted to show us in the way we created life how much joy and pleasure he has in creating life. I thought that was well said. It's a a signpost that you were made to be like God, to know God. And again, all of marriage is like this, isn't it? As sex points to the covenant of marriage. What is marriage? Paul says in Ephesians 5, it itself is a signpost. It points to Christ in the church. When you consider marriage, those of you who are happily married, those of you who aren't married, but you know somebody that's happily married, there's something about that, that magic, that mystery in the pursuit of man and a woman for one another. It's a signpost. It says, this is who you are. You were designed to be loved by God like this woman is loved by this man. You were designed to to be one with God like this couple is one with one another. Again, don't you see? Don't you see what God has set up here? All of this is so good. All of this is so healing. It's so life-giving. It's so helpful in our pursuit of knowing God. So that's God's design for sex. But secondly, second point, what have we done with it? What have we taken this and done with it? Well, this gets back to the image of God, this idea of the image of God. Remember I said before, the four things, we're sacred beings, we're relational beings, we're functional, we're representative. If you take away God, if you take away the image of God, if God hasn't given that to us, then you have, to, you have all these functions, you have all these things, but you have to figure out an identity. You have to figure out who you are. I like to say it this way. You have to find a life. The New Testament uses this great word, Zoe. 
And this idea of Zoe, it's different. There's two Greek words for life. One is bios, which means life, like you're alive, biology. But one is Zoe. And Zoe is like your life, your identity, your purpose. What is your life? What is the meaning of your life? What is your Zoe? What are you living for? And here's the deal. You're all made in the image of God. And you're either using what God has entrusted to you to live for him, to live for his glory. You know him. He is your Zoe. He is your meaning. Or you're looking for something within all these functions. You're looking to find life within these things. You're looking for some identity. And one of the places where people go to look for a Zoe, to go to look for an identity, is sex. Whether this is sex outside of marriage, whether this is homosexuality, whether this is transgender or gender confusion, all of this comes from the same impulse. It's all this desire to find a Zoe. It's all this desire to find a life. It's all this human-centered identity, identity outside of the Lord. So to the young couple that's having sex outside of marriage, I know what you're doing. You're trying to find Zoe. You're trying to be happy. You're trying to have fun. I know what you're doing. But it's outside of God's design. And if you go into sex like that, looking for a Zoe outside of God, if you go to sex for life, it'll always disappoint you. It'll never be as whole as you desire. It'll never be right. You'll always be marketing yourself, right? You'll always be worried. There'll always be fear in it. There'll always be a little shame. But if you go to sex with a Zoe, by God's design, in, in the way that God created it to be. Oh, there's so much life there. Same thing with a homosexual person. If you're dealing with homosexual relationships, you're here today. I just want to say to you, I know what's going on there. You're looking for an identity. You're looking for life. You're looking for belonging, like we all are. And in a secular world that doesn't understand God's design, it would say to you, the, the reason that there's some pain and hardships here and there is because you're not like them. You're like this. You're saying, well, maybe I can go to this. Maybe this will give me a Zoe. Maybe this will give me a life. But it's not God's design. It's not how the Lord made you. I think in so many ways, homosexuality is a distortion on one side of friendship and on the other side of romantic love. Both of those are good impulses. An impulse to friendship, to have deep and meaningful relationships with people that are of your same sex is a good impulse. But God has a design for that. The impulse for romantic love is a good impulse, but God has a design for that. And it's only when we have our Zoe and life in him that there's true wholeness and peace and rest to the person struggling with gender identity. Again, in a secular world, if you have to go out and find your own identity, if nothing has been given you from God, you have to go make your purpose and identity. Again, it seems so liberating, but bless you if this is, who, if this is where you are, because that's terrifying. And you'll go and you'll chase all sorts of things. And the secular world will say, well, this is how you are, and this is how you are. The reason you're sad is because of this, or this, or this. And I just want to say, you know, the same is true if you're going to your work for a Zoe. The same is true if you're going to really noble things like parenting. <laughs> a lot of people, you're finding your identity in parenting. Maybe it's even Christian uh, ministry. That you're going to say, well, this is why I'm important. Look at all I'm doing for the Lord. I just want to say, if you're going to any of these things for an identity, for life, it'll always leave you empty. 
It'll always leave you dissatisfied. It'll always lead you disenchanted. This is the disenchantment of our age. Because we were made for God, by God, and for God. You, you only find real Zoe when you know the Lord. And I so identify, I think we can so identify with uh, the band, The Counting Crows. One of their lines, can't you hear me? Doesn't this enchant, disenchanted age, doesn't this our disenchanted age, can't you hear me? Can't you hear me? Because I'm screaming. And I did not go outside yesterday. Don't wake me. Please don't wake me. Because I'm dreaming. And I might just stay inside again today. The Bible says it like this. This is from Jeremiah 17. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, who's trying to find his identity and his achievement and what he can do and who he is, makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns from the Lord. Here's what it says of this person. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Where are you finding your identity? Right? Where is your life? Is it in yourself? Is it in something you're charting out for yourself, something you're doing, something you're accomplishing? Here's what, here's what the Bible says about that. Whether that's in a same-sex relationships, whether that's in success in business, whether that's in... I've done a lot of good Christian ministry for the Lord. If it's in yourself and what you have done, here's what the Bible always says of that. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Your life is like a desert. You'll have no life. But the Bible goes on and says, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose life is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots into the stream that does not fear when the heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought. I like that. It's not that the Christian life is without hardship. Heat comes, drought comes, but there's a stream. There's a river that won't run dry. And even despite hardship and even despite pain and even despite the difficulty of life, there's, there's leaves, there's fruit. It does not cease to bear fruit. Now you could say, okay, thanks Jason, good sermon. I'll just trust in the Lord, right? I just want to be one of those people. I'm not going to be the desert guy, I'm going to be the stream guy. Okay, let's pray and we'll go home. Here's your problem and here's my problem. It's verse 9, which says the heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Here's the deal. Who of us has really trusted the Lord? Who of us has really trusted the Lord? Who of us is really pure? <laughs> Who of us has not been deceived? It's easy to think, well, I, I'm not, you know, perverted sexually. I'm not broken sexually. Here's what I would say. Yes, you are. Who do you think you are? One preacher said it this way. Anyone north of puberty is perverted in some way or another. 
So if you're coming here and you're saying, gosh, I'm around all these like super righteous Christians, good news. They don't want you to know. They don't want you to know the truth. In one way or another, we're going after things that are false, that are idolatrous. And so this leads us to the third point. How does God redeem all this? What is our hope? If our heart is deceitful, if we're parched in a dry land, what is our hope? In this passage, it's a very interesting story. God brings out a new life, Eve, through the rib of a man. He puts the first man, Adam, to sleep, and from his side, he takes a rib. Adam is wounded, if you will, and God brings forth this new creation, this new life, this woman, Eve, and it's pleasing to the man, and it's good, and it's whole, but of course, what does this man and woman do? They take what God has given them, and they distort it. They spoil it. They seek themselves and not the Lord. And every child of Adam and Eve from that day has done just that. Except for one. There was a second man who came. A second man who came. And he was the man who truly trusted in the Lord. He, he was the man who planted himself by the water of God's word. He was, the plan, he was the man whose roots were always in the stream of God. The life of Christ was without sin. He, he, his heart was always pure. I mean, you think about this, every thought he had, every impulse he had was always toward the Lord. How unlike Jesus is my natural self. But he was so pure, he was so right. Every, every instinct he had was to please his father. But instead of receiving the reward that he was due for that, instead of being the tree that always produced fruit, that always was well taken care of by the stream, Jesus actually traded places with us. He took on our sin. He took on our rebellion. He became the parched brush in the wilderness. He became the one that was put out in the wilderness, far from God, far from the stream of God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was God's chastisement. He exchanged places with us. He exchanged his righteousness for our sin. And I want you to hear this. And from his wounds, from his pierced side, as it were, God has brought forth new life. And you know what the evidence of that life is? It's this. This is what God is doing. Because of the pierced side of Jesus, because of the death, because of the life, because of the death, because of the resurrection of Jesus, this is what God is bringing to life. It's you who are looking to Jesus. And as you look to him, as you repent of your sin and trust in him, he brings forth new life in you. He gives you desires for him. He, he, he helps you to desire what is right and true and orderly and good. This is new life. And so I call out to you today. Look to Jesus. Find this life. Put to death the old man. Let the new man, let the new woman come alive in you. The, Paul says it this way in Ephesians Chapter four, 
put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt, your deceit. This is the problem of our heart. Our heart's always deceiving us. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on what? This new self, this new life created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You were made for God. You've all been made from God. You're all made for God. We've all ruined that in our sin, but God has restored us in his son, Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this healing is out there? And if you do, repent of your sin today. Whatever you're walking in here with, turn from it and look to Christ and, and, and trust in his healing power and trust that he forgives you and trust that he loves you and trust that his death actually counts for you. And that, and that all of that shame and baggage that you carry in here, all of that sexual perversion that we all carry in here to some degree or another, be freed from it and follow the Lord. Experience this new life. Be the tree planted by streams of living water. Be the tree that even, even in hardship, even in loneliness, even in pain, continues to bear fruit. His leaf does not wither. May God do this in our church. May he produce life in us as we look to his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you renew life in Christ, in his life, we've received righteousness. In his death, we have received forgiveness. In his resurrection, we have received hope that we will be raised, that we will be made complete, that our old self will finally be put to death and that we will live as we were supposed to live. Father, bring forth this life in your church today. Give me, give all of us here, give these people faith, eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. May we look to Jesus and we pray all this in his name. Amen.